He I want you to imagine a dog barking in your head. Can you hear it? How does it sound? Is it crisp and clear? Is it muffled or nebulous? Or is there just nothing? Kia ora, nau mai harumai ki te au hurihanga. Hello and welcome to Our Changing World, ko kreken kanan tēnei. I think most of us go about our lives presuming that the people around us are experiencing the world much as we do. Seeing the same colours, feeling the same textures, processing and storing information in the same way in our brains. But I'm here to tell you that this is not the case. The diversity of how human brains work and interact with the world is astounding. And today, I want to introduce you to an aspect of this diversity that blew my mind when I first heard about it. I see the world and I think of the world kind of through closed captions, you know, these thoughts sort of pop into my mind and I can comprehend exactly what I'm feeling, what I'm seeing, um, what I'm experiencing, but, but those thoughts aren't translated sort of verbally into this, into this voice. This is Sanghyun Kim. It's a very interesting way of seeing the world, uh, what's completely normal to me, but it's, it feels sort of so strange having heard what, what everyone else goes through, um, having these sort of conversations with yourselves or um, rationalising your thoughts via some kind of voice, which, which to me is, is kind of freaky in a way. I've always been used to this kind of silence. Sanghyung is a PhD candidate in the Department of Mathematics at Waipapa Taumata Rau, the University of Auckland. So investigating how math is taught and how it's learned at the undergraduate level. His research sounds really interesting, but it's not why I'm chatting to him today. Instead, we're discussing how differently our minds work. Because while I often rehearse sentences in my mind, assemble bits of podcasts, get earworms stuck on repeat, and replay full conversations... Sang-hyung doesn't. Most of us can do this, to a greater or lesser extent. The best estimate for the percentage of those who don't imagine sound in their minds, or have no auditory imagery, as a psychologist put it, is just less than 1%. When he finally realised that he was in that less than 1% that don't have an inner voice, it came as a bit of a shock. I almost broke down and had some kind of like existential crisis. I, uh, you know, thinking about what other people, um, how they think, whether these thoughts are running through their head all the time, and you start to ponder about the possibilities about how people see the world. Does everyone sort of rehearse their speeches before mentally? Do they sing songs in their head? What are they doing that I, I don't get to be a part of? You know, and it's in a way it kind of. Um, I don't know if it scares you, but it, it makes you really open your eyes to the possibilities that nothing is really normal. It was a bit of a groundbreaking moment when, when I really came to terms that this is, is a bit of a weird thing. It's a very interesting thing that I think deserves to be looked at further. And that's precisely what Professor Tony Lambert and his team are doing. I'm Tony Lambert. I'm a professor of psychology and cognitive neuroscience at the University of Auckland. Tony got interested in this area of research through thinking about another variation of how brains work. People who don't have visual imagery. So we got interested in this and it occurred to me that people had completely ignored 
the auditory dimension of this because some people who say they don't imagine things visually also don't imagine sounds. In fact, there wasn't even a name for the lack of auditory imagery. So in a paper we published in 2021, we introduced the term anorelia to the literature and the idea of anorelia is that uh, it's the absence of being able to imagine what sounds like, you know, either music or environmental sounds like ambulance sirens or voices. Decades of psychology research have linked the mind's voice to different aspects of how we process and store information, how we construct memories of the past and look forward to the future, how we talk to ourselves in our minds to impact our own behaviour. Remember to get the milk. No more chocolate for you. What Tony and the team want to know is... Do people who experience anorelia use different strategies to do these things? They've got a number of questions that they hope to address, but the one that PhD student Zoe Shelp is focused on right now is how we strategically think about and memorise things in the present, something psychologists call working memory. It's that little second when you're trying to remember a phone number, when you're starting to rehearse that in your head, for example, or a grocery list, just the part of your memory that has flexibility and ways of either dismissing a part of information or recruiting it into your long-term storage. To test this in the lab, Zoe has a computer program that sets up a simple memory test. People come in, we sit them down, we explain everything to them, and then I sit them across from me with a screen in front of them and they get a list of four words presented one at a time on the computer, a red dot which cues them to tell me that list in the exact order that they saw it. If they get it correct, the list goes up to five words. If they can't quite remember it, it goes down to three, which means that I'll, at the point of having done 16 trials, I'll get a, an average of how many words they can remember Um, And then I score them based on that. So far, she's done this with 10 people who experience anorelia, as well as age, gender and language match controls. I give it a go, but totally cheat. Cult, hint, rush, verb. Red dot. And the red dot means I have to repeat it back to you. But I shouldn't be saying it at all. No, you shouldn't. (laughs) So, yeah, in my mind, I would be, if I wasn't able to say them out loud, I would be saying them over and over in my head. That would be my strategy. Mm-hmm. So what did you find for the people who experience anorelia? What kind of strategies did they use? So what we found is that they're equally as likely to repeat them in their head. I'm not quite sure how that works, but um, we kind of had the same thing happening there where they were able to have some sort of concept of repeating the words in their head. But they were way less likely to create a story through the words that they got. So there are a couple of words like fantasy and um, misery and and cat. And so you would imagine like a fairy that's really, really miserable petting a cat. A lot of controls would do that and would like talk about how they tried to remember, especially rhyming words like that, like mat, cat, cap. They'd imagine a cat on a mat with a cap on. But anorelics wouldn't do that. Um, they wouldn't really think of that, which was quite interesting. I'm not quite sure why. Were any of them kind of, I mean, not saying the words, but like mouthing the words? Yes. I kept calling out people being like, 
you can't actually whisper them, you know. Um, I had one person that I didn't catch up on that used sign language to, like, I guess mouth them but with their fingers, which was, I was a little bit like, that's quite sneaky. Um, <laughs> I mean, is that cheating? Could, could other people also be using their fingers to remember things? I don't they know. They definitely used their fingers. Um, Anna Alex used did that a lot. They used their fingers to remember how many words were in the list because the word lists changed the lengths. So they tried to remember, okay, I need to remember five words. And then based on that, they'd go back. They were also very likely to create abbreviations. So if they had fantasy, atom and misery, they would try to find something from fam and then go back to their head being like, okay, what are the most common words that I like have recently seen that start with these So no difference between the group's inability, some different strategies. It's very early days in the team's investigations into Anorelia. And right now, they have more questions than answers. Over the next few years, they aim to expand the current studies and start investigating those questions around storing and retrieving past memories and imagining futures. They'll also bring in advanced imaging techniques to look at what's happening in people's brains. Here's Professor Tony Lambert again. If we can find these different strategies in a way that people think about the present, the future and the past, is that accompanied by some different patterns of brain activity? So we do have plans to do that as well. So what we'll be doing is asking people to imagine different kinds of sounds while we're monitoring their brain activity using a technique called high-density electroencephalography. And then we're also going to use another technique called functional magnetic resonance imaging. So we'll be asking people with different experiences of auditory imagery to imagine different sounds and then we'll look at what patterns of activity we can see. So what's typically seen when you ask people to imagine sounds is that the areas of the brain that light up when they're actually listening to a sound, those same areas light up. And if you're rehearsing something in your mind, you're saying a phone number or something over and over to yourself, you uh, see activity in similar brain areas to the ones that would become active if you were actually saying those words. So there's a lot of kind of commonality between imagining things and and, and hearing things and doing things. So one of our big questions, and this will be something we'll probably tackle in the last year of the project, is to see whether or not we see the same kinds of patterns in people who say they just don't imagine sounds or whether or not they're completely different. From that initial existential crisis, I asked Sang-Yung how he feels about his experience of Anorelia now. I'm really glad that this is being looked into now. I'm surprised that that it's sort of taken this long for, for people to notice that there was a difference, and I guess it's so hard to identify that there is a difference there, right? We all think that we see the world in, in much the same ways, for the research that will take place, I'm really looking forward to, to seeing what comes out of this. You know, maybe there'll be something special that only we can do that, that the others can't, or maybe the other way, but who knows. I think we should embrace this kind of neurodiverse world that we live in, right? I think it's, I think it's amazing. Thanks to Zoe Shelp, Gage Quigley-Tamp and Professor Tony Lambert from the Department of Psychology at Waipapatoma Toro, the University of Auckland. And to Sang-Yung Kim, who's doing his PhD in the Department of Mathematics. Ko klekin kananaho te kaihotu o tēnei hōtaka. I āwhina mai a Justin Gregory rawa ko Ellen Rikers. 
I produced this one with help from Justin and Alan. Sound engineering was by Phil Denge and Tim Watkin is executive producer of podcasts and series at RNZ. Our webpage is at rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. Tēnā koe i mai. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great week. Kia pai tō wiki.